All right, Ruth chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 first. Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. Okay, so the first point is this. God's sovereign plan includes our faithful action. God's sovereign plan includes our faithful action. So let me define what sovereignty is. So when we think of God being sovereign, what I'm actually saying is that God is in control of everything. Right from Genesis chapter 1, he created everything. He rules over everything. Everything that we see in this room is his, and it's under his control. It's under his rule and his reign. Um, And he has given those things to Jesus. And even right now, Jesus is sitting at the right hand, ruling and reigning on behalf of the Father. And so nothing in the world happens that God is not in control of and aware of. And so that's what I mean. But here's the point. God's sovereign plan, the fact that he is in total control of everything, it also includes our faithful action. And so there's a lesson here in these first five verses that we need to be really careful to understand. Whenever we say that God is in complete control of everything, we need to to realize that we suffer a temptation immediately. So here's what we need to be careful about, though, is when we think of God as being completely in control, one of the temptations we face is saying, okay, well, if God is in control, then I don't have to do anything. I can just kind of let him direct me in my life. I'll just kind of take a hands-off approach, and he will do everything that he needs to do. He'll use me how he uses me. But, you know, apart from that, I'm just kind of here. I'm going to hang out, and I'm going to wait until God gives me a vision as to what to do. Tyler, go this way, do this thing. Or like he's some puppet master that has like those, you know, those real old, weird, creepy puppets. Why are they always so creepy, right? And he's like, just like moving me around. Well, one of the things that we learned from Naomi and, and one of the things that's really helpful for us under, to understand is that God's good plan, his plan of redemption, his plan for Ruth and for Naomi and for Boaz in this book includes action. It includes people actually taking steps to do things that they feel like God would have them do. So Naomi acts. She chooses to do something. Let's take just a moment to clear up a few things. Because when you read verses one through five, there's this moment where you're kind of like, what is happening? (laughs) Like, right? When you read that, let's, okay, can y'all just like level with me? When I'm reading that, everyone's like, what? We read it and we're like, what is happening? What is Naomi telling Ruth to do? And so I want to clear up a few things. First, Naomi is a broken woman who needs grace. So before we understand anything, before we judge her and we look at this plan and we're kind of like, Naomi, I don't know if this is the best way. We need to understand that she has lost her husband. She has lost her sons and she is still grieving. And so she needs our grace. She needs grace from us, right? Her plan is definitely risky. Like she is telling Ruth, a young woman, to go at night and apparently sneak up on this full-grown man and like lay with his feet. 
we're like Naomi. I, I don't know if Ruth should be doing this. She's broken. She's a broken lady. When we read this, and we read this risky plan, we need to understand that this lady needs grace. She needs us to look upon her with grace because she is hurting and broken. And so we need to not be so quick to judge. Number two, we need to realize that we always kind of naturally read our context into the Bible, and that's not the way you're supposed to read the Bible. We can't look at this and be like, you know what, I'm pretty sure Hollywood has made a movie about this, and I'm not allowed to watch it, right? That's kind of where we go, because that's the world we live in, right? I mean, I'm serious, like, and I don't have to have any sort of examples that your parents are going to get mad about. All you need to do is drive down veterans and look at the billboards. There's going to be something where you're like, ah, that's a little weird, right? It's just kind of the way our culture is. But what's happening here for Naomi, she's not thinking the way that we would naturally be inclined to think, right? That this is some sort of bad encounter. Now, it is risky, but Naomi, she's thinking first and foremost, you know what, Ruth? I'm about to get you a husband. I'm going to get you married. Again, risky plan, but... Naomi is thinking, wait, you went into this man's field and it just so happens to be Boaz and he sent you home with all of this food. And by the way, he brought you in and he was like, hey girl, um, just want you to know, don't harvest in any other fields. We got all you need. And by the way, we'll keep you safe too. Right? And so Ruth comes home and Naomi's like, he told you what? And so here's... This is really important, right? It is funny, and I think this is probably how it goes down. I don't know. But it's important that we understand the Bible has its own context that's not our context, right? And so whereas we can scroll through Instagram and we're like, man, that's, I shouldn't see this. Like, why is this popping up on social media, right? That's the world we live in. That's not necessarily what's happening here. And so Naomi's like, hey, we need to get you a husband. I need you to... Um, I need you to do a few things, and we'll read about that in just a second. But she's thinking, this man has made it so very clear. Boaz, our kinsman redeemer, he wants to care for you, Ruth. <laughs> right? Like, this man, he wants to put a ring on it. But here's the problem. He's old, and he thinks there's no way that this, this young lady is, is ever going to want to to be my wife. And so he doesn't ask her out. He just says, hey, you come, get what you need in my field. I'll send some home so your mother-in-law can be fed. Stay here. You'll be safe. You'll be safe in my field. Naomi says, you're right, she will. And so that's what's happening. She sends Naomi at night. Third thing we need to understand, this is not the way to get a spouse. Right? This is not smart. The reason I say this is, and this is why we started out with, we have to give her grace, right? She is, she's hurting. She's still probably not on great terms with God, right? Remember, she changed her name in the very beginning to Mara, right? My life is bitter and God's the one who has made it bitter. And so at this point, she's like, okay, well, I don't know, maybe God's doing some things. Uh, this is a kinsman redeemer. He can actually marry this lady. And then my husband and his sons, their line will continue through Ruth and Boaz, I'll have family forever through them. And she kind of jumps the gun and she sends Ruth in in an unwise way. Now, why was it unwise? 
Now, even if she means the very best, and that is, Ruth, I'm trying to get you a husband, why is it unwise? Well, the reason it's unwise is because we should never put ourselves in a situation where we might be tempted to sin. We should never willfully allow ourselves to be placed somewhere where sin seems more appealing and easier. And so what happens, and you can extend this to your life in any way, Naomi says, Ruth, go at night into this man's tent. Y'all, that's not smart. That's not a place that you want to be because it moves you one step closer to actual sin. It's a bad place. But it's in these moments, even though they're not preferable and it's not a place we should actually willfully enter into, it's in those moments that our character is tested, where we are tested as to who we really are and who we say we are. All right, so you know those videos that are on um, YouTube? Maybe they're on the reels and TikToks and all that stuff. That sounds so old. I don't, I don't do any of those things. Are they called the reels and TikToks? Is that <laughs> right? Whatever they are. But do you know those videos? And it's kind of funny because most of us who are parents, like we, at least 30% of the time, we treat our children like they're actually just animals. So like you're feeding them, you're bathing them, you're punishing them, you're giving them treats, you're for a long time, like cleaning up their feces, right? They're kind of just like animals with feelings. But have you seen the videos where parents bring their kids in and they'll sit them in, at, at a table and clearly there's like a hidden camera that's probably actually just sitting on the table in front of them and they're like, hey, um, I just made this fresh batch of cookies, but mommy has to run into the other room. So I'm going to sit it here. Don't eat it just yet, okay? Wait on mommy, right? And then mommy, cruel, cruel mother, walks into the other room like she's peeking and giggling and laughing and the kids just sitting there and they do all kinds of weird stuff right they're like it's like at one point you're like i don't know maybe this kid's possessed they're like shaking their heads are spinning but the cookie's still there then you have the other kids who are like okay mom and then just like done and then the mom comes back in and they're like where'd the cookie go and they're like i don't know mom your fault and then you have another one who's like, and like they're touching it. And then there's like another one who's tearing off just a small part. And they're like, they, they, just, get, they just get weird. But here's the actual test. Are you going to obey mommy with what she tells you when you think she's not looking? Are you going to obey mom when she steps into the other room and she's not there anymore? Right up to this point in, in Ruth, like these five verses, we're kind of like, Okay, all right, verse one. Okay, verse two. All right, verse three. Ah, uh, verse four. Oh, uh, verse five. We get to verse five and we stop and we're like, what is going to happen? What is the next step here? Right? There's a, there's a lot of tension that we're supposed to feel when we read verses one through five, right? The, the, the author, the narrator is telling this story in a way that tries to make it as dramatic as possible. Right? We're supposed to see in the first five verses that when we get to verse five and stop, we're like, wait, what happens next? That's actually what we're supposed to be thinking. Because what could actually happen in verse six is the ruin of Ruth and Boaz. Right? These people up until this point, Ruth literally, she sees her mother-in-law leaving and coming back to Bethlehem. And she says, where you go, I'll go. Where you die, I'll die. And we're like, Ruth, what a lovely lady. And then she goes and she finds Boaz and Boaz is like, hey girl, um, 
I like you. I'm not going to tell you, uh, but you can be here. I'll provide for you, and I'm going to give you safety, right? This is a foreign lady in a foreign land, and she would be so easy to take advantage of. And you have Boaz coming in and saying, no, you're safe here. You have all that you need here. And so when we get to verse 5, we're like, no, 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 no. Not Ruth and Boaz, right? They can't let us down. They're good. They're godly people. Ruth is serving a God that she has just fully given herself over to. Boaz obviously has been touched by a God and is so affected by God that he goes in and to, even to his workers, he's like, hey, the Lord be with you. And everyone's like, working for Boaz is awesome. He's just like, hey, Lord be with you. Hey, over there, did you get enough water? Lord be with you. Boaz is the man. He's like the, he's like the stereotypical Christian person that you walk into the church and they're like, welcome visitors. And so we get to verse five and we're like, please don't let us down. Not Ruth and Boaz. So what do we learn? What happens? Verse six. So Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. That is, he's saying, yes, I am a redeemer. I should be someone who steps up and marries you, but there's actually someone that's closer to your husband than me, and he should be the one that redeems you first. We should ask him. Verse 13, remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before anyone could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So he held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city and she came to her mother-in-law. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Verse 18, she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. What's the second thing we learn? It's this, that the motive of our heart becomes clear in our actions. The motive of our heart becomes clear in our actions. You know, for a Christian person, for someone who claims to have trusted in Christ for their salvation, there's only one main indicator as to whether that person has really been saved by God. There is only one way that any of us can know for sure that anyone else in this room has been saved. And it's this. It's by the way they live their life. It's by the way they live their life. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that these people 
struggle with sin, because guess what? We all struggle with sin. We're all sinners. Until Christ comes back and takes us to heaven, we will fight sin. So it can't mean people who just sin every now and again. It means that our life, the way we live it day to day, will actually tell us and other people whether we are really saved. And so Ruth chapter 3 is really concerned, though, with the way we live our life when no one is looking. So now we are doubling down, and we're not just saying, okay, well, it's the way you live when you come to church. Well, congratulations. There are a lot of people who fake it when they're at church. I'm not saying you're one of them. I'm saying church is a place that we come, and we think we have to put on this Christian lifestyle. And so we put it on when we need it, when it's advantageous to us, but then when we go home and no one's looking, it's back to the old me. And so Ruth chapter 3 wants us to examine ourselves by the moments that no one is looking. Ruth chapter 3 wants us to be concerned to ask the question, would I act in the dark like Ruth and Boaz? Is that who I would be? So look with me at verse chapter 9. So he says, who are you? Right? By the way, like he wakes up and there's just a lady at his feet and he's like, he asks maybe the greatest possible question you could ask in that scenario. Who are you? And she answered, listen to this. I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Where have we heard this idea of wings being spread over? Well, we heard it here in Ruth, but David just read it for us in Psalm 61, where David cries out and he says, God, Spread your wings over me. You are my refuge. You are my safety. And so in this moment, Ruth could say, hey, I'm here to get a husband. Boaz could say, hey, I'm glad you're here. A lot of things could happen that we don't need to talk about. What Ruth does is she says, will you be my redeemer? Will you take me on? I have nothing to offer you. I have nothing to give you. I am merely here asking for your grace. She doesn't intend to be a temptation to him. She doesn't intend to make him sin or any of those things. And Boaz's response teaches us a really important principle. A godly life never needs the cover of darkness. A godly life never needs the cover of darkness. Boaz responds to her by saying, listen, I will redeem you but there are a few things we need to get straight first. While obviously I have a crush on you, there is someone who is in line before me. He's the one who has the right to redeem you. And according to God's word and God's law, what we should do to honor God and his word is to take the matter tomorrow to this man. I am not going to step out of line with what God has called me to do as a Jewish man in his law. And so what he basically does is he says, hey, um, you've come at night. Uh, we need to make sure that no one sees this little thing happening because it's not going to look good for us. So you can stay here till the night. You need to get up and you need to go when no one can see you because we don't want people to think something happened that didn't happen. And so he says, but what we need to do is we need to expose this moment by the light of God's word. Essentially, he's telling her, 
we need to find out what we're actually supposed to do here. So here's how I want to end. How do we cultivate a life like Boaz? How do we ensure that the moments when no one is looking, that we will have the same resolve, the same character, the same godly leaning as Boaz? How do we do that? Because it's, it, 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 is, it is so easy for you right now to be sitting in this room and being like, yes, I'm a good Christian kid. And then to go home tonight and be tempted to not be the Christian kid anymore, to put on a different persona, to be the, the, the other you. How can we ensure that we don't let that happen? Because again, Ruth chapter 3 is really concerned with us being of godly character, especially in the moments when no one can see. So three things that we need to understand. Number one, God doesn't need our goodness to save us. You cannot go from this place and go home and be good enough for God to save you. Right? What we have to understand about Boaz is that he's only who he is by the grace of God. He's only who he is by the grace of God. Boaz has simply put his faith in God and his good purposes, and he has looked at God and said, hey, here I am, God. Here's my life. It's imperfect. I'm imperfect. I'm a sinner. I'm broken, but here I am for you. So the first thing is you can't be good enough to be like Boaz, but you can be like Boaz and simply say, God, here I am. I'm probably not very desirable to you, but here's my life. We only become like Boaz by the grace of God. You can't be good enough. It's only by receiving God's grace. Number two, God asks us to believe and have faith that he will save us. God asks us to believe and have faith that he will save us. So in this moment, Boaz could have freaked out. He could have like kicked Ruth out and been like, hey, what is God going to think of this moment? Right? He assessed the situation. He realized the risk, but he trusted that God was the only thing that would actually save him. Not the appearance of being godly and not having a new young wife. Only God. And so Boaz, he believes and trusts that God is his Savior. Right? So look with me at Psalm 130, verse 7. O Israel, Hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. One of the things Boaz understands is that the only way to be saved, the only way to be redeemed, the only way to be made whole and right is if God is the one who will do this. And that's why when we read in chapter 2, we said, well, this is actually what Boaz is doing for Ruth in taking her in and caring for her and providing for her when she has nothing to offer, we said, well, that's what God does for us. Well, the reason Boaz does this is because he has met that God. He has been redeemed by that God. He has been saved by that God. He has been taken in and covered by that God. And so that's why he does this for Ruth, because he acts the way that God has treated him. He loves Ruth like he has been loved by God. Boaz owes Ruth absolutely nothing. In fact, there's someone that's even in line before him. And he could have just said, hey, Ruth, there's another guy. You need to go like, deal with that. He even says, hey, if he, if he won't do it, in the name of the Lord, I will. You can give me nothing, and I will promise you everything. Why? Because Boaz has tasted the grace of God. 
Number three, and finally, God enables us to do what he asks of us. God enables us to do what he asks of us. Through this picture of Boaz in this moment where we see Boaz and we're kind of like, right, we read the first five verses and we even get into verse six and seven and eight and we're like, this is not looking good. Well, Boaz's reaction and his character, it gives us a look into the future redemption that we will receive in Jesus. So Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, the Apostle Paul tells us something really important to understand about the Christian life. Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What Boaz doesn't understand that we get to understand is the reason he responds to Ruth like this, the reason he loves Ruth like this, is because he has been loved by a really gracious God. And God has so affected him that he's now acting like a Christian. He's acting like someone who will eventually, like the Apostle Paul in Galatians, say, hey, I have been saved by Jesus, and it is Jesus who informs the way I live my life. Right? If you think I'm good, it's not me. It's the God who has saved me. It's because of him that I act this way. It's because of him that I live this way. It's because of him that I desire these things. It's because of him that I hate my sin. What Paul is telling us and what Boaz doesn't understand, but how he acts, is that God redeems all of who we are. When we are saved by God, when we place our faith in Jesus and his work on the cross, what happens is he takes all of our punishment, he takes all of our sin, and he died with it. And he gives to us his life. And a part of that life is being able to live like Jesus, to make decisions like Jesus, day and night. So if you want to learn how to cultivate a life like Boaz, it's this. Entrust yourself to Jesus. Cry out to him. Confess your sin to him. Give it to him. And trust that if you do that, he will save you. And from that moment on, he will grow you. It may be slow at times. It may be quick at times. But he will do in you and through you all that he calls you to do. And so when you go home tonight into the darkness, into your alone time, just remember that all that God has asked of you, if you have trusted in Jesus, he will give to you.